But once you've got adequate protein, then you're not going to turn on and, or shift protein metabolism in any way that's going to drive it to produce greater, more rapid muscle growth. Hmm. So just providing more protein, and this is a very, very just basic conceptual idea, but just providing more protein is like delivering more bricks to a construction site where there's plenty of bricks and there's plenty of two by fours and there's plenty of nails. You don't need any more materials. What you need are more workers. You need more energy in order to fuel the construction process. Hey, what's going on guys? We are back with Scott Stevenson on today's episode of Muscle Minds. And as always, we are going to dig into some bodybuilding science. This week we're asked after bulking, do you really need to go into a maintenance phase before you go into a cut? We talk about overeating protein and we are asked, how do your protein needs change while you're on cycle. All of that and a bunch more. Listen, if you're new here, then I encourage you to hit the subscribe button and hit the bell. We got tons of bodybuilding education coming out each week. We're giving it to you freely to help you be better at this sport that we all love. Thanks for being here, guys. Let's get to Scott. less important like the way i've like the way i've heard it is and the way i've seen it in my own life is that if you're deficient then taking some extra b12 you may notice it like you know how like years ago it used to be on the message boards like oh b12 is going to increase your appetite and it's going to give you energy and all yeah. that stuff and i found that that is true if you're deficient in b12 but if you already yeah. have all the b12 sure. you need then it's not like you're going to get twice as hungry because you took some you know no I, I got real hungry. So, you know, on a, on 5,000 uh, micrograms of B12. So then I took 10,000 and I got twice as hungry, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, that's the thing. There's understanding the nature of the chemical and what its role in the body. So a pure vitamin like B12. Yes, that makes sense. You know, it's, it's, it isn't the vitamin. It's a component of enzymes, but it's in your liver. There's stores there. So someone who's like been, not so kind to their liver as a bodybuilder, perhaps might be more likely to, this may be a more generalizable state to say it's going to help you feel better. Maybe. And then there's that. something like our, our good friend L-carnitine, which is described as a vitamin like substance because it is part of an enzyme, um, the acyltransferase that moves fatty acids into the, uh, um, mitochondria, but it also is produced in the body. So kind of like vitamin D, it's a vitamin, but it's produced in the body. But vitamin D is also a hormone, has its own receptor in that way. So, so you've got that. So there's, there's, and then, then you've got things like testosterone, which are hormones. And then, of course, those hormone-like substances, which bind, um, those are being steroids, androgens that bind to the androgen receptor. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then you've got melatonin, which has its own receptor, receptors. And then it acts as a free radical scavenger. Um, so it scavenges free radicals. And, the, and I was just, the thing I was just digging into, and I'll have more on this later, like I said, but there's, um, it, when, you, when, you, when you, a lot of times, some chemicals that are free radical scavengers basically take a free radical and they, they, they scavenge them by becoming a free radical, the one that's less destructive. Uh, um, really? So a lesser of, yeah, a lesser of two evils. It seems like there's like a there's like a, a cascade of multiple 
um, uh, end products of the free radical scavenging that melatonin does as a chemical unto itself, um, which are all free radical scavenging. So it's like it's kind of like the the like a ten-headed hydra. I think they said there was ten actually in this latest paper. Ten-headed hydra of free radical scavenging. So one free radical is met by melatonin, and then there are ten different metabolites, all of which can be formed from that or in a, in a series. And again, I haven't read the paper, but that all frat, uh, scavenge free radicals. So that's fucking cool. Like, yeah, and that's, that's just cool. chemical, but that, that's what happens in these high doses. Yeah. So that's why it's such an interesting hack because that's a feature of that molecule, which wouldn't become apparent under normal physiological conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Because like no one's, unless you've got a tumor, you're not producing that much melatonin in your pineal gland. It just, and I don't know if this is what I want to dig in and read. Is there any, are there any food sources or any, Mm. any, you know, exogenous sources that might be, um, uh, might be responsible for why it is that, that we can react and respond to that, that we sort of co-evolved with those. Hmm. Um, Like the good example of co-evolution or at least the theory of co-evolution are um, psychedelics, okay? Like like, like magic mushrooms. Um, so Terence McKenna, you know that name? Oh yeah. From the, yeah. So Terence had this. Um, what was the, it? Was the uh, uh, something ape theory? Joe Rogan's talked about it. I've heard it. Terence in interviews. Somebody somebody about will it. be yelling. Yeah, some of the thoughts out there. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So you know, the uh, wandering across the savanna of Africa, finding these mushrooms. Yeah. And then just stumbling upon them and eating them and then having stone ape. That's what it was. I was about to stone look it ape, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The stone ape. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that we co co-evolved with some of these chemicals in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's just those individuals who had the particular receptor or the receptor isoforms just sort of through the happenstance of genetic evolution that made them more receptive to the psychedelic effects and the brain evolving effects of such thing existed or exists. I think, I think there's something definitely happens when you take psychedelics for most people. Those were the individuals who, when they took that mushroom would, would then be propelled forward into a higher state of consciousness and understanding of the world around them, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's maybe the kind of the next little micro step of human evolution. At least that's was Terrence's thought. So, that's why these biohacks are so types of things are so cool. It's because you're, and it's what, that's what bodybuilding training is too. It's a, it's a, it's a physiological biohack. You're Absolutely. taking advantage of the molecular machinery that turns on muscle growth by doing something that, that you would never, it's an unnatural act. As I say over and over again, it's a bizarre thing. Just like taking that much melatonin is kind of an unnatural act. Like where are you going to get that? I don't know if there's any food source or an herb source. Maybe there's something out there. Maybe we'll figure this out later. Maybe there's some chemical that that is very melatonin-like that's in food, what have you, that that we you know co-evolved with in some way. But so yeah, it's like for everything from a pure vitamin to hormones and you know the biohacking thing is very 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 cool. Bodybuilders, bodybuilders are biohackers. I, I agree with really. that. And we're gonna keep all this in the show. By the way, uh, Brian is with us, and he said that he skipped leg day. We're going to get this thing rolling, though, like like officially rolling. But with all this is staying in. Uh, let's say up Andrew and Andrew. Guys, we're watching Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. All right. The intro is done. Actually, check out uh, Scott's book, BYOBBCoach.com. 
uh, tons of information, education there. Uh, be your own bodybuilding coach. And I talk about our sponsors all the time. I appreciate you guys supporting us through that and through Patreon. We have, so I'm, I'm not even going to do it right now. Um, we've got a bunch of questions. Scott, I collected questions from uh, YouTube from our previous episode. Uh, plus I had one from Patreon. Is there anything in particular, because we kind of went over them a little bit before we hit the button. Uh, is there anything in particular you wanted to start with? There, there was that, the, the one about... Um, the bulking phase. Uh, yeah, that's a cool one. I thought you, okay. Okay. We'll start there. Um, question for Dr. Scott. Is it true that after a bulking phase, one should enter a maintenance phase for some time before cutting? I've heard it stated that it prevents breakdown of newly acquired muscle tissue, but I'm skeptical uh, that it's actually necessary. Thanks. And I'll text these <laughs> over. I'll text these over to you right now too, in case you want to be able to like review any of them or anything. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, this is one I've talked, I think could cover this on one of the German podcasts and I've had conversations with my German friends about this very topic. Um, so it's sort of fresh in my head because we've gone back and forth. Um, uh, so Nikki, Bala, um, in the case you're listening. So first of all, that, that's the thing that people tend to find. And maybe you've seen this before that someone goes into a bulking phase and there's some things that could be obscuring how well they can actually determine whether or not they're, they're losing tissue. If they go right into a cutting phase right afterwards, maybe they, they've got a lot of water, they've got a lot of fat. So like if you bulk up and you, if, let's say you get 10, 15 pounds above where you've ever been. So you're, you're bigger than before. Chances are you got a lot of water. That water is creating some fullness. It's also creating the, sort of the wateriness too. And then if you go right into a diet, you're like, fuck, I lost 10 pounds, you know, in five days. Like, yeah, that's water. But it also, you also lose some fullness. Um, you also may lose some uh, interstitial leverage. You heard, hmm. Have we talked about that? Do you know that term? You've heard that term before? It's an old school term. Uh, no, no, but I get it. I don't know if we've talked about it. I'm sure we have to some extent over the past several years, five, five years of talking about training, yeah. but are you talking about like mass moves mass type of thing? Kind of. Yeah. Like someone like maybe post-show they'll notice this and it, they have to be, you have to be careful with it. You, you retain a lot of water and you get all that fullness. And what that does is it adds some, it adds tension to the yes. muscle belly. Yeah. yeah. So now you're all the, the connective tissue, then the series elastic components in there are stretched. So it's kind of like adding some tension on your trampoline. So you, you know, you bounce higher. So if you, if you're at all ballistic with your training, you're going to get more elastic rebound and, and, and just the feeling of being stronger. Like you're like, if, if Maven sense like, man, if I go all the way down on this movement, I feel like I'm going to tear something because everything's stretched. The muscles now rounder. Yeah. Um, so the literally the length of those those connective tissues um, is greater when you've got all that fluid in there. So anyway, that there's some things that could obscure just sort of seeing this um, phenomenon where you, people seem like they lose muscle more readily, especially the newly gained stuff. Um, the, so the water and et cetera, et cetera. But there are some reasons why it makes sense, I think, to hold on to do a maintenance phase and kind of hold on to that new size. Um, one is if there is some strength that came along with that and mm. these are like new, like the big movements that you've gotten the new strength levels on, you want to have some, you want to be used to that. You want to have some practice with those. So let's say you've, 
you know, you're now you're squatting with five plates for the first time. Yeah. And you go up and you get to where you squat with five plates twice. And so you're at 240 pounds and then immediately you drop down to 232 and the next week or within two weeks, you're not going to be wanting to do those five. It's not going to feel the same, but if you maintain that weight for three weeks and you still have the interstitial leverage and your nervous system gets you, it's a lot of this is just psychological too. Yeah. Then those five plates are five plates. So you're just feeling those five plates. So, sorry, I got, I've got a, a roommate. Um, and, uh, so that's important. I think just for holding on to the strength, which is what drove the mass gains yeah, to some degree. So that's there. Then there's the sort of the biological mechanisms that I think are involved. Um, we've got, uh, sorry, my dog, little, can you hear that in the background? A little bit. What is that? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, one of those air tags. Air tags. They just make, yeah, it's like a, an iPhone product or an Apple product for, oh, yeah. I have one of my dogs just in case, you know. All they do is make noise when they move around. It doesn't oh, do okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll, live it. we'll live yeah, with well, it. Yeah, well, it'll go for like five minutes sometimes. It's annoying. So there's those, there's the, just, just, to, just to have been big. And, and take as another example, or just sort of a, as a, um, a way to grasp this concept. Imagine someone who goes to the, the new weight of 240 and holds it for a year. They're going to be used to using those weights for a whole year as opposed to two weeks. Yeah. So that they're going to be able to die down with that 500 pound squat or whatever it is that they've been doing and hold that. Cause they've got, they practiced, they've done that, you know, dozens of times now there's also um, epigenetic changes that possibly could be playing a role here. So when muscle is changing its size, there's the epi- epigenetic changes that come along with that. And we've talked about epigenetics before. These are, this is basically um, a port a, a way of adapting by which certain genes get turned on by things like methylation of histone proteins and the, and the various proteins that control whether genes are more likely or less likely to be turned on or off. Yeah. So that's something that, for instance, uh, like some, some of the unfortunate research where they dug into this is cancer oncogenes. So certain, certain um, carcinogens will actually turn on oncogenes epigenetically. Something about that, that cancer, you might have like two twins and identical twins, the same genes, one of them gets cancer, the other one doesn't. And some chemical exposure turned on and changed these proteins sort of which allow those genes as to be opened by the key of a, of an actual carcinogen, um, more easily. So those are, those things are changed when we train. Those are part of the training adaptation. So just give, allowing that to be, stay in place as opposed, or basically to manifest. So you, the longer you're at those heavier weights with the larger muscle cell size, the more likely you're going to be able to have epigenetic changes that are going to persist and then be in your favor when you try to come back down again to help yeah. you keep that size. And then there's our good friends, the satellite cells. Mm. Okay. So, and this is where it's kind of like people, the question that's asked is like, how long do I need to do the maintenance phase? It need to be a week that's or a, yeah. a month or, you know, six months. And it's hard to say there are the studies generally show in the long term couple of different things. One, the more satellite cells you have, the better growth the person gets. Hmm. So it's better to have more satellite cells just generally. That's probably a genetically determined thing to some degree. And then as muscle grows, it gains more satellite cells. We talked about the nuclear domain theory 
been around for a long time. Muscle cells are very, very big. This is the old analogy of um, you're building a city, you need a bigger city, you're going to need more post offices. So those satellite cells donate nuclei to produce more post offices to service what is now a growing city, a growing muscle cell. And you need those satellite cells. But muscle cells can grow without having the satellite cell activity and the corporation of new nuclei um, in place. They can get bigger and that can happen for weeks and it can be sizable, measurable, statistically significant, et cetera, et cetera, at least in the short term. But generally the long term, when the muscle is really quote unquote committing itself to establishing a new, in this case, larger size, more satellite cells or something that you want to have in place because those stay for months, years. Those are one of the things that people kind of suggest that like once you've geared up mm -hmm. and obtained new muscle size, because um, steroids help with the satellite cell proliferation and differentiation, that now you've got those satellite cells and those are basically become a fixture. Yeah. Those maintain the high, the larger muscle cell size. So you have an advantage. Even if you're clean for, you know, two, three years, you still got the satellite cells. They'll stay around for a long time. So you never really are, you're always, you're always advantaged when you've, when you've gone on and gotten those satellite cells in an unnatural way. And so when you come back down, so the idea then of maintenance back to original question is that at least go long enough, maybe a few months where the signal is persistent enough such satellite cells will proliferate, differentiate, donate new nuclei, and then set up those sort of permanent new nuclei in the cell, which are good for retaining muscle mass. Yeah, um, I like that, Scott. I do. Yeah. There's, you know there's a, one last thought. Just yeah. in a, sorry, that was a long ramble, I know. Um, the interesting thing about, like, one of the prime studies, and I forget his name now, Alex, maybe, that the British researcher who, who, um, Oh yeah. 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 Uh, KT. Doing, yeah. I can't remember. That's what he has on Facebook is Alex KT. Yeah. Right. I remember his last name exactly, but he's doing a study looking into this idea in, in, in previously previous users and non-users. And one of the formative studies is sort of the baseline justifications for looking into that is, is work with, um, animals where they produced hypertrophy in uh, with steroids and no steroids and then allowed the animals to atrophy so they they took them off i think they were using a um i can't remember which model of, of muscle growth they used but then but then without any steroids the group that previously had used they had more satellite cells and the muscle grew back more quickly no kidding um because there are more satellite cells there I so believe those it. satellite cells yeah i mean it just makes sense if you're going to rebuild a house so to speak, and you and this nuclei is where all this, um, this these production materials are being produced that are going to make up the, the structure of the house or the muscle cell. Yeah. Then having you know ten nuclei as opposed to five is in your to your advantage because you can do that more rapidly. So it's generally be to your advantage to have more nuclei there when you're dieting down as well. I think in terms of holding on to, to new size. So the exact time frame we don't know. It's probably highly variable depending on a person, but several months make sense for those neurological psychological reasons epigenetic reasons i think and the satellite cell reasons so i you know you got me thinking about my own uh weight and my own bodybuilding over time and i remember yeah. uh for like early on i had this set point of 186 pounds 
where mm. no matter yeah. what I did. Yeah. Remember you know, that number. <laughs> yeah, it was 186. It, it, wow. Sometimes 187, like 186, 187. But no matter what I did, um, after I came back down, I'd hit like 186, 187. I think here, here's a couple factors. I got a couple things I want to say. Number one, I, I think how long do you need or how important is it to have this maintenance phase? I think no matter what, it's important. But if you're if you're coming off cycle 100% completely and you don't do any kind of hormonal support, then it's even more important, number one, mm. because, you know, you, you take the you take that environment away that you built the muscle in and now you for a period of time might not even have your own natural testosterone as you have to rebuild that i think that that is that is the hardest part of bodybuilding is right there if you come mm-hmm. off cycle completely yep. you have a little bit more leeway i think if you do stay on a trt or as everybody does talks about like a blasting cruise type method um i think a factor is is like, like you were saying, Scott, you know, you prefaced this as, let's say you gained 15 pounds. Well, how, where, where are you in your, like your, where are you in your, like your limit, personal limitations? Are you a guy that started out as 115 pounds like I did? Right. Or are you a guy who's naturally been a football player all your life, always been a big guy, propensity to gain muscle. I think that like all those things do really play a factor and you know, your job plays a factor. If you're a landscaper versus sitting at a desk, you can burn off a lot more. But then I just, I was thinking about myself and I thought I had that set point of uh, 186, 187 for a long time. And then, um, 2017, uh, I, I, I competed starting around 2012, I started competing in light heavy and I'd be in the one nineties on stage, two thirties off season. And if, and I found that no matter what, if I would lose track of my diet, if I had, if I wasn't paying as much attention, I would never drop below like 198, somewhere in there. Uh, And then most recently, after I, my last show in 2017, 206 that was my set point no matter how low i got if i wasn't paying attention to my diet if i you know if i started you know dieting down it would be real easy to get to 206 now in the last couple of years i had really started pushing again during the pandemic and now i can't get below like 216 like 216 to like and you know in this last year scott i haven't been like train i haven't been able to train hard you know right and i've had a ton of time off and yeah, my weight has dropped lower and it was really low when I got sick, but like 216, I just stay around 216 now. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it just, I guess, and I just wanted to kind of review that because I'm listening to you talk and I felt like if we actually put a timeline to a person and I use myself because I can, I followed my history, my entire bodybuilding, you know what I mean? Um, right. So it's easy to use myself <laughs> as an, exactly. It's easy to use myself as an example but you know, I think paying attention to those things, um, it, it 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 all lines up with what you're saying. It it makes sense, and I feel like now, yeah, my set point, man, is like you know around that that two fifteen mark, and I feel like honestly, it would be hard for me to drop below that. Like if I don't try, I still will stay, you know, right around here. Yeah, there's so many things that figure into that. I think that that phenomenon of a set point. Okay. Um, with your food, so so there. The, here's the here's the, the thing that popped into my head when you're when you're talking there is that you could get below that. 
Yeah. Oh, and yeah. I, I think, I think, yeah. I, it, it, but it just would take something extreme. And and Dusty's circumstances mm. when his weight how how laid, how low did his weight go? I don't. I don't even. He was know. in the two thirties. Yeah. When I got six, Scott, I went down to one eighty seven. Believe it or not. Okay. Okay. That, okay. That number. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly enough, yeah. yeah, I went down to like yeah. the the one eighty seven, one eighty six <laughs> range. Um, but that was like hydration and everything. I went from two thirty two right. in three weeks down to one eighty seven. Wow! Yeah, yeah no, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah and Dusty so, went from like the two eighties, two nineties down to two thirties. Okay, I thought he went lower than that, but um, but still, that's just you know crazy. Yeah. So so yeah, the satellite cells they they they're not the end all be all. It's not like you know the muscle is just absolutely permanent. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, like Ronnie Ronnie Coleman was an example. I remember Ronnie talking about you know when he would finish what back and he was still competing. <clears throat> and he get done with Olympia. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was out training today, kind of yelling, and my voice is a little, uh, a little raspy. <laughs> nice. Uh, he's like, I think muscle ain't going nowhere, you know. And it wasn't. He would stop training for like two, three months, I think, all the way from, from maybe Olympia through Christmas. Yeah. And not not lose a thing. But now, obviously, he's had all these surgeries. There's probably some denervation there. You know, his, now his legs don't look like they used to look. I mean, he's, sure. you know, he's been in a wheelchair, so. So that's another example people can kind of look to. So the, the muscle can indeed atrophy, but um, so it's all a matter of, of um, sort of various levels of, of Velcro that are going to hold the muscle at its newly acquired size. And satellite cells are a big one, I think, but you still need the training stimulus. You still need the nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. Just the activity. Um, you denervate a muscle, for instance, like they do this in animal studies, like denervation atrophy, and it's, it'll go like that. What does denervate mean? Like make it under- cut the nerve. Yeah, yeah. The the the, the nerve. The, there's there's a neurotrophic effect. This is sort of like kind of off, but it's a very fascinating area. Um, they did a lot of these studies. I don't see them done all that much, but so they can do like cross innervation on 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 muscles, <clears throat> and uh, take like an example. We take the take the, the nerve that goes to the or portion of the nerve that goes to the gastroc. And the soleus, so the soleus is a very um, slow twitch muscle, mm-hmm. and it means and it's used for its postural muscle. It's it's in, in, in rats, it's like almost a hundred percent slow twitch and and, and white, um, or sorry, red. And the gastroc is very very white. It's very very fast twitch. So gastroc gets used when you're running, and the soleus, you know, just standing all day long. It's constantly being used. Hmm. If they cross innervate those things, then the um, the animals will, there'll be some adjustment period, but you'll very, very rapidly get a shift in fiber type. Hmm. Um, and some of that's activity based because <clears throat> those are both locomotor muscles, but you can also do things in muscles that are um, of the hand and they've done, they've done this in various circumstances. So just changing the nerve without even changing the activity, just the nerve itself, yeah. the best you can control that thing will change the, the way the muscle manifests in terms of its fiber type. So that because there's nerves are saying there's muscle tone that is constantly there. If have you ever had to like pick someone up who is um, like totally out, like rendered completely unconscious? Yeah, it's a different so story like, than when they're helping, you know. Yeah, yeah. And if someone's been um, like uh, prepared for surgery mm-hmm. and um, or someone's been curare blocks the neuromuscular, the neuromuscular junction. Um, so the muscle is literally paralyzed. And there's just no tone there, nothing. 
So we're constantly getting some a motor tone that's reflexive that's sending some signal to the muscle. So it's like some kind of baseline activity that's there. Even if you're not like picking anything up or moving around, there's some, there's some tone there that maintains the muscle size. And that's the yeah. function of the nerve that's there. Yeah. So the nerves that are going to the muscles determine to some degree the, um, the fiber type that they have just determines their character to a, lar- to a very large extent. You lose the nerve and if someone, for instance, has a spinal cord injury or they have um, just like a blown disc where they've got denervation, they can't feel and they can't activate a muscle, that mm-hmm. muscle will atrophy like really, really rapidly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Unless it's spastic. So sometimes you get spasms in people with spinal cord injuries and then they there's some people in, in wheelchairs who won't take their anti-spasticity medicine, hmm. um, but and they'll get they'll be getting you know that's just their legs will be jumping around and, um, and but they do that because that's that spasticity maintains muscle size. That's crazy, huh. and they're not they're not walking. They're just yeah. it's just like the, it's just the spasticity and they and they don't care. They just but get it, little the, signals. The legs look the legs look more normal. Yeah, it's not there's not signals from the brain. There's signals that are just yeah. circulating reflexively in the spinal cord. Hey, you know what, if I can add something else I thought of too, and there's so much we could say is, you know, another thought would be, you know, how, uh, um, how long does this maintenance phase need to be? I, the, what, what my experience has been, cause I, I do work with a number of guys long-term, like year round, we do contests, we go into off season, we go into growth phases, we do contests after that. It doesn't have to be this set in stone. Okay. Now we're dieting. You know what I mean? Like, like you can still maintain muscle in a deficit more easily if you just, so my thought would be if you're, if you're growing, right. And then you come off cycle, first thing I do, and and this is just a kind of a general statements, uh, I'm probably not going to pull the food out just because we come off the gear. I'm going to watch how they respond. And over time, we may need to reduce the food. If if they aren't getting as much out of the food that we used, then maybe we need to pull that back. But eventually, there's no point in time where I say, okay, now we're going to cut. It's just a shift. We gradually shift to mm-hmm. the point where we could maybe get you a little bit tighter this week. We pull out a little bit. Maybe it's just Maybe it's just a little bit of fat out of a meal. You know what I mean? Or maybe it's just a little mm-hmm. bit of carbs out of one meal. And then let's see how you respond. And and it's never a point where like, okay, now we are cutting and, you know, your muscle has been saved so we can do this. It's a transitional phase that eventually, yeah, we are cutting, but it's not something that just happens overnight. So, you know, don't forget, you know, you're not going to lose all your muscle if you're eating that, like what it takes to maintain minus, say, 100 calories. You're probably going to be able to save muscle a lot better than if you just like pull it all out and do a bunch of cardio. I don't know. And I know I, I tell you, there's so here's the thing behind that. And this is this will help people, I think, who may run to that. OK, now I'm cutting and they lose yeah. lose size or they drop too rapidly is psychologically we want to know what we're doing like what's our yep. goal where yep. which direction are we heading when someone's working with the coach like you their goal is to follow you like you're they're on a hike it's just go where scott goes there you go and i yeah. know he's going to lead me in the right direction but if you're doing this by yourself being in that kind of no man's land you're like am i are you dieting and are you are you gaining or are you losing it's like Oh, I'm kind yeah. of just watching what happens, and, you know, <laughs> like letting things sort of like go the way they're gonna go, and like we need to like there needs to be like a new term, like this is what I'm doing. I, I'm in I'm in a maintenance phase. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm trying to maintain the size I gained previously, 
and I'm adjusting my diet in order to in order to keep my body composition within a range that makes sense given when my next contest is coming, given if someone's going to put a, go on another cycle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you're in, a, in an in-between place. Yeah. And if you know that concretely in your head, it's like, okay, this is where I'm going. This is what I'm doing. This is the purpose. This is the rationale. These are the changes I'm going to make. This is why I'm doing them. This is, this is my, the method to my madness. Then psychologically, you're in a stable spot. You're like, okay, I got, I'm hooked in. I know what I'm doing. If you're like, oh, shit, I'm fucking fat. I want to lose. I want to get lean. Yeah. And then people like drop a thousand calories a day and then their weight just plummets. That's, I think, when you can run into those problems where your strength goes down. And the thing I don't think I even tied together is that um, if you do lose strength when you drop that water, you lose that size, then you're also losing to some degree this the tensile stimulus that helps you hold that muscle mass. You want to be able to train as hard as you possibly can. Yeah. So, so it, it might be, and there's another sort of feature of, of like that 500-pound squat situation. Let's say someone's just gotten to where they're doing 10 reps with 495 on the squat. And they do that for two, three, two, three weeks, and they maintain for two. So now they've they've actually neurologically they're getting they may even get a little bit a little bit stronger, but they're learning how to do that because they've done it and they've psychologically they're there. So then when they come down, they've actually they may have a neural adaptation to some degree that allows them to better maintain those loads in the gym um, because they've just had practice with that big heavy load. It does They're like, oh fuck, it's five plates. First time they do it, it's like wow. This is something special. This is way I've never done this before. Now you've done it ten times. It's yeah. Like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this motherfucker. I know I can do ten plates because I've done it. So you need to be able to maintain that stimulus as best as possible when dieting down, um, because the stimulus is what got you the muscle. It's what's gonna help dance with the one who brung you, as Dante said. Absolutely. That's what I, like, what I like to say too. So. I had one more thought yeah. here from okay. from one of our listeners. We actually we've had a bunch of people just chime in and saying hi. Uh, so I didn't want to neglect them, but uh, uh, one of our guys here is a client of mine, uh, Doug, and he makes a comment saying, uh, "Just this is the opposite end of things." He said, "Definitely seems like there are these upper lower limit set points. Crazy how intelligent our bodies are." And I know what he's thinking right now. He's at his upper end right now. Uh, we did a check-in. I, I work with him. We did a check-in, uh, I believe it was yesterday. And he said, okay, so I'm 245. He said, this is the heaviest I've ever been. And my body never wants to get heavier than this. He said, I've right. been here before. You know, yeah. but this is the heaviest that I've ever been. And this is where my body wants to tap out. It is kind of crazy, isn't it? How we can yeah. reach those points uh, in both directions. Yeah, the, there's research on on that too in the under and overfeeding studies with twins that I've talked about. Yeah, yeah. Where they where they controlled them, they had them sequestered in a clinic, and they they gave them one case of uh, they set up a baseline and they gave them a thousand calories extra per day, six out of seven days per week. The one study and the other one they they reduced calories from that baseline and added 500 calories of of exercise. Okay. And they looked at, at the there's you know like. 14, 18 people in each of these studies, and they were twins, both fraternal and identical. So the range of weight gain or weight loss was like two or threefold. It's all over the place. And that's just this, the extent of metabolic adjustment, extent of changes in meat, the way your body handles those calories, the way it guards those set points. 
Um, and, you know, this study didn't look at like the different ranges and where, you know, how solid, let's say those upper limits are or what, how concrete physiologically you might see there's an upper limit where you just sort of run into a wall and you try to blast past it with more calories or what have you, it doesn't mm -hmm. work. But certainly the extent to which people guard the set points um, ranges tremendously in both directions. And, and it's, it's funny, sometimes like there was a, I'm trying to remember when we were in, um, uh, out in, in, in Colorado, in Denver at um, uh, um, Armbrust? Armbrust Pro Gym, yeah. There was a woman who in our seminar there and she asked Alan Aragon this question and, um, and uh, I was standing there too. She asked both of us kind of, but Alan, and she, um, I'm trying to think how, she doesn't, she had like, she would stay at like a very nice, good body fat and she couldn't gain to save her life and she couldn't lose to save her life. Yeah. Her body just was like, it just was stuck there at that one spot, I think if I'm remembering. And it was very unusual because a lot of people, they can lose easily, but they can't gain. Yeah. It would be the ectomorphs if you want to throw them in those categories. Um, and then some people like, I can get, you know, I could be 500 pounds if I wanted to, but I can't get lean. Yeah. And she was just had a resilience in terms of set point that was very, that, that, that resisted direction, moving in both directions. So... Yeah, it's it's that's why coaching and working with people is can be so cool because you've got a different puzzle each time. And and you know, depending on where you're at, like Doug, he's he's about my age, your age, young. We're all this as far as somebody who's twenty, we're all the same age, I guess. So our yeah. age, um, twenty three, twenty four, something like that. Yeah, uh, we we we're maybe approaching it differently than if he was in his early twenties. You know, right. it's like if you're you're in your 40s and you're at your top end ever we can shoot you know we can still gain muscle even without necessarily breaking the 245 like we don't have to go to 260 necessarily you know what i mean to grow right. new muscle so just a thought yeah Whew, we got a bunch more scott we got like okay. at this rate we've got three hours of podcast guys so hang in there <laughs> sit tight scott's got all day i'm sure yeah uh, <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, you know, here we go. So this is also from uh, YouTube. I would like to hear Scott's thoughts, and we can go as fast or as slow as you want on any of these. If you want to just answer with two sentences, that's cool too. Um, I'd like to hear Scott's thoughts on overeating protein when uh, gluconeogenesis happens. Uh, why calculate protein calories in your total calories when most of it, most of the time, won't even be used for energy purposes things. So, um, Most, Harun yeah. would be very interested to read Jose Antonio's work in this arena. He may, he may, people may refer to it and he doesn't know where it comes from, but they did some protein overfeeding studies where they basically, compared to the control group, added in about a thousand calories a day of extra protein. And they, these were weight training um, individuals, and they didn't increase muscle growth, but it didn't change body fat. Basically, it was just sort of, um, uh, you know, tossing into a, an, an, an unending black hole, thermogenic black hole, where it basically what he's talking about here was occurring. And it's a thermodynamic issue um, that is really kind of phen phenomenally perplexing, to be honest, because these extra calories 
did not produce any change in body composition. I mean, it could be like there's, you know, maybe some of these folks weren't actually eating everything that they said, but they did. He, he does a pretty good job with the science. Um, so I'm not doubting anything that came out of the lab. Um, but it is an interesting thing. So if you're going to, this is why just cal, it's not all just calories. Proteins to be, needs to be sufficient, but calories need to be there. And just getting those calories from protein, just to give the simplest answer here, is not going to cut the mustard. Hmm. Um, it's a safe way to add calories to some degree um, and not gain body fat. So you can just pretty much eat as much protein as you want. Like if you're, I mean, if you're dieting down, for instance, and you're like, you know, I'm so freaking hungry, I need to eat something, eat a low fat um, protein source, and you can just eat about as much of that as you like. Yeah, that would be and, like the most, uh, like, um, what, what what would be the word? There's a phrase I'm looking for, uh, damage control. It would be yeah. like the most damage control meal you could do, besides maybe a veggies, green veggies. <laughs> Yeah, well, eat, well the pro, pro, you need the protein needs are higher when you're dieting down. Yeah, um, and there's actually like Stu Phillips has a really nice study where they these were, um, I think they're just novices, but the women were were dieting on some crazy low amount of calories and they but very high protein and actually gained muscle and lost body fat on as a group. It wasn't just individuals, but as a group with the higher protein. So the protein is like. Um, as long as you don't have impaired kidneys, you know, I was going to say that, but that's very, very rare type of thing. If your kidneys are just fine and dandy, then protein is going to inhibit your appetite and you have a higher need while you're dieting down. So you can just load the protein in as long as you're just keeping it a protein. Veggies are nice too, of course, for the bulk and, you know, the, the, the increased gastric stretching that can help with your appetite. And they're so calorically, um, light that, you know, you're not going to get a lot of calories that way. So. Yeah. To get to his question, though, um, you know, a gram per pound is the, still the standard number that works out pretty well. It matches what the research keeps on telling us. It's been telling us for a long time. But you need the cal you need the calories um, in a form of another macronutrient. Mm. For for you know, carbs are uh, as long as when carbs are uh, adequate, and that's going to kind of depend on the person or training volume. If they're like a landscaper, <laughs> for instance. How will that handle carbs? There's some variability there, but the calories need to be in excess. Um, and protein, it's in and of itself, is not going to do it. Now, you could add protein that way and see if that works for you. There's some variability amongst everyone. Yeah. You might add, you know, an extra 10 grams of protein to each of your meal. So you get an extra 60 grams, let's say, a day. You know, that's, but that's only 240 calories. Um, if you just keep on adding protein, you're going to go nowhere for the most part, or at least you, you're going to reach a point of, diminishing and zero returns in terms of making body weight gains. You need to have the calories that are available because the protein, it's sort of like, um, I'll just use the, the construction side analogy. It's sort of like the protein, the protein turns on protein synthesis, especially the essential amino acids and provides the building material. So those two things are need to have, but once you've got, um, the system turn saturated in terms of the protein synthetic response, there's some argument as far as what you can do in terms of protein degradation. But once you've got adequate protein, then you're not going to turn on or shift protein metabolism in any way that's going to drive it to produce greater, more rapid muscle growth. Hmm. So it's just providing more protein. And this is a very, very just basic conceptual idea. But just providing more protein is like delivering more bricks to a construction site where there's plenty of bricks and there's plenty of two by fours and there's plenty of nails you don't need any more materials 
what you need are more workers. You need more energy in order to fuel yeah. the construction process. I and like that analogy. Protein doesn't really do it as it turns out physiologically. It's just those two things. It turns it on and provides materials. Okay. I had a, we did have a fun one here from um, one of our Patreon people. I, I think this one could kind of tie in. So we were talking about protein uh, on the last episode as well. Uh, how much protein per pound of weight is enough for an enhanced athlete. So everything you just said, does any of that change? I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase this question almost to tie it in with our conversation. Does any of that change when you're on gear? So this hasn't been studied directly, but I, I, I broke these numbers down a long time ago. And this, this gives people some context because it makes sense. Like you're growing faster, right? You need more protein. Um, gear is a very powerful drug. If, if you can create on a daily basis a positive protein balance of seven grams of protein that gets incorporated as new muscle, just seven grams. So you, you eat 200, and instead of like 200 of it being used to, for maintenance and repair and being oxidized, um, only 193 of it is, and seven of, of those. So just that would be 3.5% shift where just those seven grams get laid down as muscle tissue, contractile and connective in the muscle tissue itself. Those seven grams will give you about an ounce of muscle a day. And you get an ounce of muscle a day and it gives you like 22 pounds of muscle in a year. Okay. That's, that's, that's really good growth. And take it. That is, that's only shifting your, your, your protein metabolism by three and a half percent, something like that, three to five percent. So it's, it's, you've got plenty of protein at 200 grams. It's the stimulus of the training and the, and the stimulus of the drugs that are doing that. So you might be able to shift that a little bit yeah. with adding a little more protein to help, but but in large part, there's gonna there's plenty of protein there. You know, where someone who's eating adequate amounts of protein, it's how well they respond to the drugs and how well they train and the recovery and everything else that's there. So the building materials are probably adequate. Um, you know, I would love to see a study where they took a um, they'd have to you'd have to it'd be somewhat of a complicated study. <laughs> Some I don't know how many people would would want to do this, but it's like okay, so we're gonna have a control group. Two control groups, regular protein, high protein. Two geared up groups, regular protein, high protein. And see if the geared up group on regular protein grows faster than the geared up group on regular on, on high protein. Can or, we have a trend protein. group too? Like just a like one group trend. Sure. Good. Yeah. All right, good. Okay, yeah. <laughs> well that would be the high that would be the that would just be the gear of choice. We'll just use to keep it simple, experimentally. Everybody's everyone gets a gram of tran a week. (laughs) The gear groups, the gear groups, and the other group gets you know just some crazy placebo that does nothing. That would suck, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that um, would. Yeah, but being being enhanced, the thing the thing that I think most people may miss out on, and is having enough calories to support the growth that's possible. Yeah. 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 So getting your calories in because. It takes, and I the number I calculated this too. There's a really cool paper by uh, Slater on calories and the need for calories and extra muscle growth. And it's to gain at that at that rate, roughly 
um, like about a half a pound a week of muscle mass, you need like an extra 500 calories a day. Okay. Just to, just to support that process. I believe if I'm remembering correctly from the numbers that I, that I kind of pieced together. So that gives you two pounds in a month and 24 pounds in a year, but that's an extra 500 calories a day. And that's probably, I mean, to some degree, this is the thing you just add gear and people grow. They don't have to change anything. You know, because the because the gear is so possible, so 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 powerful. Yeah. So that tells you something right there. It's if they got plenty of food, they're not changing their diet. They're eating sort of a maintenance. They're eating two hundred calorie, two hundred grams of protein a day. They add the gear. They grow like grow like weeds. Yeah. But in order to gain at that rate, there needs to be in order to feel that there needs to be an excess. This is why people will <laughs> imagine we get some volunteers for that. Yeah. Um, this is why. Uh, you know, people will gain, especially the first cycle, and if they don't change their diet, they'll lose body fat while they gain muscle mass because they're using, they're using the body fat for, for the caloric needs to drive the muscle mass because the, the drugs are so strong, so powerful in terms of turning on those energetic, energetic, energy requiring processes that they, they cause the body fat loss as well. I'll, like I'll, I'll toss this out to like another very, very cool, just to show you like when you have a really powerful stimulus for muscle growth, how how amazing that can be um, in the context of everything else. So there's some of the original animal studies. Um, Goldberg did these way back in the day, where they take out the soleus and watch the gastroc grow, or take out the gastroc and watch the soleus grow. The animals just walk around, and you get like crazy rapid muscle growth, like thirty percent increase in size in like a month or six weeks. Muscle grows like crazy because it's constantly. This is that compensatory overload model I talk about every once in a while, uh-huh. and they've they've looked at this where they just did the the surgery and they watched the growth, and then they've they said okay so because that's that's just tensile stimulus right that's just that's just mechanical stimulus grow motherfucker grow 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 and it grows like crazy this is this growth way exceeds what you get from weight training in terms of the rate of growth. You can get that much growth over years, but certainly not in a matter of months. So then they've done, they've treated the rats with streptozotocin, which is a drug that knocks out the beta cells of the pancreas. So they got no insulin. Growth rate is the same. They'll do, um, take out the pituitary. And so there's no growth hormone, there's no thyroid, there's no testosterone. None of our our key ingredients. You know what happens to the growth of the muscle? What happens? Zippo. Oh, Nothing. no kidding. It grows no kidding. just as fast. You're kidding me. No, it grows just as fast. Huh. Under those extreme circumstances yeah. of growth. Yeah. So, you know what they can also do? What's that? Okay. How about, they've done this for like two weeks because you get you get substantial growth in two weeks. How about they take out, what's what's the number one anabolic if you're not a, if you're not a drug user? Uh, insulin? Or testosterone? Well, you mean like your own testosterone? Not, what do you mean? Food. Oh, yeah, duh. <laughs> Food, of course. Right. I'm thinking of like drugs and stuff. I know, yeah. I know. Because you're, okay. you're, nah. Because so, <laughs> like, what? Uh, what? Wait, wait, yeah, what was that? Oh, food, yes, food. <laughs> they starve the animal. You know what happens to the muscle growth? Nothing. It yeah, they st- it's still gross. Well. Dude, you know what, it's man? Still, this, hold on. Dude, how, does okay. that hap- how does that happen? It's Those amino acids are being scavenged from elsewhere in the body. No shit. They're breaking down protein, right? And this would go to gluconeogenesis just to fuel the the glucose needed for the brain and the body system. But those amino acids, because the stimulus is so strong, you're driving amino acid uptake 
to supply the amino acids as building blocks for the muscle growth that you literally can starve the animal and it will still, the muscle will still grow. So with the appropriate powerful stimulus, like this kind of a muscle growth stimulus, mm-hmm. or someone who's just starting their first cycle or using lots of drugs, you can have things where you don't need a caloric excess to produce muscle growth. You just take the energy from the fat. Or you could even grow from su- from suboptimal protein. Yeah, dude. Um, this like you want to optimize things enough protein and plenty of calories. So go ahead. Yes. Okay. Sorry. So I I was obsessed with trying to figure out why my back didn't grow. We've talked about this a bunch of times, and and through changing my training because I had everything else nailed. Right. It was my mm-hmm. technique that was not where it needed to be. And this mm-hmm. this to me backs that up. If you're telling me that you could grow a muscle without food, without hormones, uh, just by just by getting it under the right load, basically, is what you're saying. I mean, more or less. Uh, yeah. Imagine, dude, why would my back have not grown, or anybody's weak body part, why would it have not grown with all those things in, in ample supply, plus creatine and every other supplement under the sun and hard training? It's because right. it backs up my whole... The whole thing I feel like, dude, it was like unlocking the matrix a few couple of years ago now of really recognizing it's how you activate the muscle. Like, yeah, why would the no back thing. not grow? It's because you weren't activating it in a way to make it grow. And it really, I mean, dude, we all want to think that we really know everything about training, especially those of us who have done it for 20 freaking years. But there's still so much more we can learn, especially if you have a body part that hasn't grown the way you wanted it to. I just, it, I know that's like way off topic, but to me, it totally no. relates, you know? No, it, to- it totally is. So there's a um, study and I need to go and I've, I've just cruised through it. I've been so busy. I'm trying to like gather little things and I've made a note to actually look into this. But um, Stu Phillips and some Brazilian researchers published this and they've just basically looked at different training stimuli and um, amongst individuals and looked at the, the variability um between those two training programs, and I can't remember the details of the training programs, and compared to that to the training and variability you see across individuals. And there's, there was much greater variability across their, across their subjects than there was between or among those training stimuli. And that suggests that genetics play a, a larger role than the training stimuli. And there's some other research suggesting that, that training you know, isn't as important, the training variables aren't as important as, as for instance, genetic proclivity. I would generally agree with that. You take someone, you know, who's just got the gifts of the of the hypertrophy gods in their genetics, and they're going to just grow. They can train, you know, kind of however. You think of people, pros that were known for not training really hard, and they look awesome. Yeah. But on the other hand, there is something that come, can come from finally unlocking the matrix, as you said, with your training. Yeah. For someone who's not getting something to grow. And that's the, the cool thing about um, muscle physiology and muscle adaptation is that we've got, we've got this, um, I've got an article I started writing a while back uh, called, uh, I'm developing what's called Mount St. Hypertrophy. Okay. And it's gonna be, I'm not sure when this is going to come out, but I've, I've got, a, I've got the, the beginnings of it. And you see muscle growth, everything from, you know, six reps, five reps, you know, up to like 30 reps or higher. So, um, and then you can see muscle growth, you know, when you get to four or five reps in reserve all the way up to failure. Yeah. And so if you do, 
for instance, you know, 50% of one rep max, so 30 rep max, but you only do 20 reps, you're not going to get much out of that. But if you do 30 reps, you can get something out of it. Yeah. But you could take a, like an 85% of a one rep max, which might be a, you know, a five or six rep max and do sets of four and get growth out of that. So, and some people are going to do better with higher reps than lower reps. That's just empirical finding. We see that for sure. Um, some people are going to do better with different frequency regimes. We've talked about that on this, on, on one of the 101, maybe this 100th podcast. Yeah. People are going to refer back to some of those studies where the two or three versus five times a week produced better muscle growth in some individuals. It was didn't matter for some, and it was the other way around for some. So how you know volume and frequency regimes matter. So there's definitely features that can be unlocked there. But when you do a study and you just compare two or three or, or just a, a minimal amount of different training program, different regimes, and say, well, there wasn't that much difference compared to the difference amongst, amongst individuals, that, that didn't really dig in and expose the extent to which training can indeed really make a difference mm-hmm. once you've unlocked the matrix. It took you years to figure that out with your back, right? Yeah. So someone who's doing like a once a week, um, pro split for years and not getting any growth. And then they switch to, um, you know, three or three times a week. That might be for them really, really phenomenal and give them as much growth in the, in that year of doing that, that they got in the first five years Absolutely. and the other way around. Absolutely. Or contrarily, I have, you know, in the last few years had gotten so interested in uh, progressive overload. And a lot of the guys I've worked with have followed me into that after doing that for a period of time, going back to volume, you know, going back to, to higher, higher, higher volumes, you know, workouts, then it's like, it, it's just like, what were you doing? And, you know, could be the key to what to do, what you need to do next. You know, I don't yeah. know. Those, yeah. those, those things support one another. Yeah. You know, you get to where you're like, you're just pushing massively huge weights. And then when you go back to volume, those weights feel, feel lighter. You're used to like that. Oh shit, I'm going to get crushed by this. Now you pick up a lighter weight you're going to do for 15 or 20 reps. It's no problem. Yeah. Um, and then you develop, this is why you have know, this linear periodization of Matt Bieb where they'd start athletes off with, with a, um, a quadro hypertrophy phase, which meant they were just regaining muscle. They probably lost when they were doing nothing yeah. for a while. And they would get in shape with high volume training. So then, so then your recovery is to your advantage when it's time to drop down for more of an HIT thing. And you, you can recover really, really well. And it feels that psychological strain. I mean, heck, I'll, I'll toss out a little physiological tidbit. Um, RPE, like the, there's a, there are two RPE scales. Okay. Um, zero to 10. Zero being none and 10 being maximal rating perceived duration. Then there's the 6 to 20 scale, which was one of Borg's RPE scales. And that 6 to 20 refers to resting heart rate in a fit 20-year-old <clears> to maximal heart rate in a fit 20-year-old on, 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 on average. So 60 to 200, 6 to 20. Because RPE, rating of perceived duration, scales with your heart rate. Yeah, There's I something about your... Your brain knows how hard the heart's beating. So if you're doing rating of perceived desertion, let's say you're in just horrible shape, let's draw a contrast here. And you go and do like your heavy, heavy set with DC training and your heart rate gets up to like 140 and, and it just like it take your recovery heart rate is just for shit. And you rest three or four or five minutes, you still never you only get down to like ninety-five. 
you're still kind of like your your brain knows this. You're not mm-hmm. really recovered. Whereas if you're in great shape because you did a volume period of volume training like that, you recover. You're, two minutes later, you're ready to go again. Yeah, that, and that's exactly what my problem has been this last year. Having gotten sick is that yes. my heart rate goes through the roof, and then it comes. I'm lucky to get it down to like you know 95, something like that, after five to ten minutes. So, yeah, a hundred set of like 130 pounds on the squat is like an RPE of 20. You know, in on that scale, you know, which is yes. it's hard for me to get that. So I could see that, man. It, it would take time for somebody who was say untrained, unhealthy. Uh, I miss that. I miss that being able to take that yeah. to a hard 20 with heavy weight, you know, but that that's yeah. off topic. It just made me think of it. No, no, it's on topic. Really. Um, I think, I mean, just for you, the thought occurs to me is, is just being aware that your heart rate and of course be safe, you know, don't do anything that's medically contraindicated, Yeah. but being aware and this is something that I employ all the time when I'm, you know, at the end of those really tough sets is I just take a third person perspective. I'm like, that's just pain. That's all it is. It's just, that's my body doing what it's supposed to be doing under these circumstances. Yeah. But it doesn't mean I'm going to, I'm going to give into that. I'm going to just keep doing reps. The yeah. reps will happen regardless of the pain. And I like the pain because that's what I'm shooting for. That means I'm creating stress which produces the results I'm looking for. Absolutely. That's definitely well, the attitude that. to take. Yeah. You know, not everybody appreciates that, you know, which somebody, some people aren't cut out for that. But I think uh, guys like you and I don't understand those people. <laughs> I, I do. I get them. I get them. They're probably smarter than us, Scott. <laughs> You're right. You're right. They're probably a little more rational. But I, I think of this every once in a while that, that you know, that classic, uh, video of Tom Platt's squatting 495 or 500 pounds yeah. where he's got the green belt um, and he does 23 reps. He picks up that weight and you look at the, watch the first five or six reps and you're thinking, oh, he's going to get about nine. And then he gets to like 10, 11 or something. Maybe it's about around 12 or 13. Watch his face. He starts to smile. He's like, now we're about to have some fun. Yeah. He's looking forward to that place where he's really doing shit. Yeah, absolutely. So as opposed to, Oh God, my heart's going like, Oh God, this hurts, this hurts, this hurts and resisting like, and wanting like just to escape that. Yeah. He's going into it. And that's what I'll try to do. Like, look at here goes the heart rate. Here goes the leg pain. Here goes the pain, whoever, this is where I want to be. This is, this is what I've been thinking about for days before this workout. This is what I, what I've been working towards in my warmups, this, these last four reps, this is where I've been wanted, wanted to be. Finally, it's kind of like, it's the orgasm not to get like all cheesy, like Arnold, but this is where like, ah, this is the goods. I'm finally reaping the reward of these meaningful reps that create the pain and the sensation that is stress. That is the stimulus that I want. Yeah. So, yeah. I think a lot of people who uh, relate to you and I and programs like fortitude training or DC that we, that's that's what we live for, you know. Like like Bill said, yeah. absolutely. Yep. <laughs> All right, listen, I'm going to switch topics here because we have one okay. more. Uh, we don't have a lot of time here, but it, it it is one of our Patreon people. Which, by the way, guys, if you want to support our programming, Patreon is the number way one way you can do that. Uh, Think Big Bodybuilding Media. I'll have a link in the description on YouTube. Uh, this is kind of an interesting one, and I, I would be interested to hear your thoughts. I have a idea myself. He says, uh, I have a serious one for Scott Stevenson. Uh, so I think I've got to be an anomaly. 
I'm fairly addicted to full calorie soda, uh, which isn't the anomaly. Every time I quit the habit, my performance in glute and muscle mass drops and my labs stay the same. A minor drop in glucose, uh, but I'm not out of range either way. I'm, uh, I've quit multiple times. I've done it for a prep, just cutting calories. I've replaced it with better carbs. I've replaced the calories to my best uh, ability with protein. Um, I'm not talking a small amount of sugar either. We are talking 250 grams a day. Every time my body fat goes up based on looks and multiple body fat scales. I am the landscaper that burns on average 5,000 calories a day though. The only thing I can think is that are a greater energy source for, I'll stop there because from there he's just speculating and I would rather hear your thoughts than on what it, what this could be. He's drinking 250 grams of sugar a day and he says when he stops, uh, he gets fatter. Yes. Um, or and or weaker like throw that up if you could one more okay, time sure. i think he said his performance goes down to i'm just uh where's that at my performance and muscle mass drops yes there you go so yeah and then the fatter thing so he may just be looking fatter so a couple couple things um We'll be interested to see what he's drinking. I mean, it's probably just high fructose corn syrup. Just ma- making sure. Be interested to know what he replaced those carbs with, mm. and how he did it. So, I'm experiencing this now with with moving. You know, I'm I'm just going all day long and just get, trying to get fluids in. It's yeah. easy to drop body fat. It's not a problem because I'm just spending so many calories. Five thousand calories a day. I was. It could be even more as a landscaper. You know. If he's if he, for instance, took a situation where he was providing some carbohydrate during the day and maybe a meal was, you know, somewhere in there to where he just took that out or maybe he tried to put all his food at the end of the day. So he had like an eight hour stretch of no food. That could be a very catabolic situation. Yeah. For him. So he's you know, he's he's he may be with those with those carbs preventing the catabolism that comes from doing all the work that he's doing. In fact, he most, most certainly is having higher insulin. Insulin's anti-catabolic. So he needs those calories. I don't, I'd be interested. We already talked about protein, not being able to, to fill the bill as far as calories go. It doesn't mm. serve the same purpose. It's anti-catabolic as well. Um, but he, he said protein to expense that he could or as best he could. I doubt he was adding an extra 250 grams of protein a day. That would be crazy. That would be, that would be like what? Um, eight scoops of protein powder or something like that. Yeah, that'd be a lot um, of protein. Yeah, that'd be a lot of protein. That'd be so, like an additional day of eating for a lot of people. Yeah. He could, you know, there's, he could use just like, just try, try dextrose. Here's the thing. He doesn't getting much, he's, he's, he's not, the problem with high fructose corn syrup in large part mm-hmm. um, is that it's in the context of someone who's eating at a caloric excess and they're sedentary. Um, that's why, you know, it's, it's, it's associated with diabetes, um, metabolic syndrome, obesity, high blood pressure, all those sorts of things. It's, these are people who are not active like, like he is. 
he's eating that or drinking that soda and just to maintain a caloric balance probably. So he needs that food and he's, and you can, you can, if he's oxidizing carbs throughout the day, that's not a problem. The thing about fructose that's sort of connected with this, this problem of um, insulin resistance and abdominal adiposity, so visceral fat, is that you're only going to store like 100 grams of carbs or so in your, in your liver. So, and you don't take up fructose readily into any other tissue other than the liver. So it's great for liver glycogen storage, just for instance, to have glucose around during the, during the evening or during times when you don't have food there so you can maintain glycemia. But if you're taking in 250 grams of fructose and it's got to be taken up by the liver, what the liver does with those carbs that are fructose is turns them into fat. Mm-hmm. And that leads to the chain of events that brings on adipose tissue in the abdominal cavity around the organs, the visceral fat that that's not associated with good cardiovascular rip, rip, risk profile, poor lipids, high, um, high blood, blood sugar as well, all those sorts of things. But for him, let's say if he weren't doing landscaping, he might have a caloric balance of 3,000 calories. I don't know how, how big he is. Let's just say it's, let's say it's 3,500 calories. But he's doing 5,000 calories of, that's his caloric expenditure during the day. So he's taking in 250 grams of carbs, 1,000 calories worth of carbs, to offset that amount of activity that he's doing. Yeah. It's not a problem. It's getting oxidized. So, and, and interestingly enough, you know, fructose is, it's not the devil per se. It's actually, a, the glycemic index of fructose is like 20 if you look it up on the, Really? It's very, yeah, it's very, very low. It's because it doesn't raise blood glucose. It's fructose. I got you. you know, so it, it'll go into the liver, and the liver will kind of put a little bit out, but it doesn't do much as far as blood glucose goes. So he's just taking in a caloric source to match the caloric expenditure because and he's a highly active person. He's got himself out of the, the couch potato category that's associated with sedentary living and, and all these diseases of sedentary living and, and metabolic syndrome. But, and he just so he needs those calories. Um, the thing that is really kind of, I think, working against him making gains is all the activity. Yeah. That's a hard thing to get a caloric. How is he going to get really a caloric is. access when he's doing all that work outside? Man. Landscapers bust man. their butt, man. You I really struggled a lot with that of time. when I worked for yeah. the pop company, man. And I, I got yes. up to like 8,000 calories a day and beyond that. And it, it still wasn't enough. It, what ended up happening was my digestion gave out on me before... I could actually gain, reap the rewards. Had I been sitting at a desk or something, man, I'm sure it would have been a whole other scenario. I would have never needed that much food. What were you taking in to get 8,000 calories, Scott? What were you eating? You know what? It was a a slurry of bullshit in real food. (laughs) That's the best way I can put it. Um, And I was using maltodextrin because I was trying to stay as cheap as possible. So it would be like a solid food meal in the morning. And then one hour later, I would take like uh, 50 grams, which I think was a full cup of maltodextrin and mix that with a couple of scoops of protein and some olive oil. And then an hour after that, a solid food meal. And then an hour after that, another one of those shakes. Then an hour after that, I'd go to McDonald's and I'd get the doubles, the McDoubles and the fries and two pies. And then I would go train. I'll tell you what did work really well for that. When I pushed that heavy, and I was working with a coach at the time for my contests, but doing my own off season. 
when I showed him my diet uh, to go into contest prep, we didn't have to like go really hard to start the dieting no. process. We just switched the McDonald's to like 10 ounces of beef and two cups of potatoes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or two. Yeah. Yeah. It was more than two cups. I think it was like 16 ounces of potatoes, you know? And it was like, all of a sudden I'm getting shredded, you know? Yes. Yeah. You have, you have so much room to work with when yeah. you're that high. So yeah. you, you said you had some thoughts on this question too. What, what do you think I, is? Well, okay. Here's a thought is that he said that he gets fatter. When he comes off of it, I think he's just not as full as he was. Yeah. You know, I think that's really muscle what's, mass too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what's going on is that he's, you know, he's depleting, he's shrinking down and the body fat is staying the same. And that's why I freaking absolutely hate those bio impedance tests for, for body fat because they have done a screw job on so many people's brains that step on those scales and that they're like, oh man, I actually, I, I'm doing really good. You know, I'm making progress. The scale is down two pounds. But when I stepped on the bioimpedance test, it says that I lost two pounds of muscle and I gained, you know, 2% body fat. It's like, no, no, no. I think that what happens is, is that his body fat is stayed the same. He has less glycogen, less fluid in the muscle. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's what he's seeing. And that's what the tests are telling him too. That's how the, that's how those tests work. If you get dehydrated, it'll show you have less muscle and more body fat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they they're based on the assumption of different resistance to flow or impedance to flow in those two tissue types, in fat-free mass and fat mass. And fat-free mass having more fluid in it is going to have a lower impedance to flow. And um, I've got one of those scales. I was I, I needed a, a wanted a bathroom scale just to have one for competing and everything else. And I got one that I thought was kind of cool because I could, it has an app that I can record on my phone so I can keep all the numbers there. And it had bioimpedance and it didn't cost any more than, yeah. they're so cheap, you know, with, yeah. with good reason. And I've never, ever, and I've had this scale for like two years. I've done two competition seasons with it. So I've gotten down to shredded glutes and the whole thing and I've never gotten below 30% body fat on the scale. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't change. Like I've gone from, I could even look. Well, I, I think I could pull up the data. Um, I've like my body weight will change by like thirty pounds. Yeah, and and it, my body fat's always thirty percent, thirty two percent. It's always like there. It's like what in the world? Yeah. So yeah, those those those, those really don't. And um, yeah, I, that's maybe a topic I can cover because I see more and more places, more and more gyms offering. I think it's in body is the one. Yes, sir. Yep. Yeah, and I, I would like to go and um, dig in and see how how that's been validated for muscular, recreationally trained, or even bodybuilder populations, just see what the literature is. Because oftentimes, I'm not sure this is the case there, so not casting dispersions without knowing, but there's issues with having validation populations. Um, and, and actually, some, so when you validate a method, you have some some golden standard or some some standard like DEXA might be, and you compare um, whatever method you're trying to validate with that. And yeah. then so so there's like this is the one we presume is right, and this is the value that we that we're we're testing out to see how right it is, accurate so to speak it is compared to their our, our standardized method. But you also have to validate for the population of 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 people that you're interested in studying. So. It might be valid for um, obese women who are 30% body fat or more. But that's a different story than competitive male bodybuilders with single-digit percent body fat. Right. Um, 
and and that's like even even Dexa way back when I have a Dexa scan from the '90s when I was in graduate school, and it hadn't been validated on bodybuilders who were really lean. I did this two weeks after my very first show. Actually, I stayed in shape because I knew we had a body comp lab, and I was four or five percent somewhere in there on skin folds, um, underwater weighing. Um, several other methods, and then and Dexa was also put me at there. But it, my my midsection, my torso, was like negative point two percent body fat. Yeah, do you remember? We a lot of our listeners may not recall. Uh, some of them may, some of them may not if they hadn't been with us for a long time. You remember when uh, Ronnie Coleman was on the Joe Rogan show, and he said yeah. that he was negative body fat percentage. Um, I, I did a post on that. On we did a on we did a show on that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 We did a show on that. So we, we had talked about that one before. That was like only like a year ago, right? That was yeah, dude, in ago. internet time, that was like a decade ago, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> You're just so busy with stuff, but yeah. Yeah. So that's, and people are like, no, that's bullshit. But that's very, could very well be what the, what he was told mm-hmm. because, because it's, they don't even have, there's, they're, they don't have something built into the computer to basically disallow impossible numbers. Yeah. They just, it's a regression equation, which is a line. And if you know, you're so off, if you're so outside of the validation population, then, then the line just puts you at a negative number when that's physiologically impossible. Yeah. So. All right. Anyway, as far as it's a really good point though, about that question and, and hydration, he may have just been, and drinking all and taking all that soda out and trying to replace it with rice and water, mm-hmm. drinking two liters less water. So when he get on a scale, you know, he's, you know, he's got less water in the system. He was relatively dehydrated, which would increase his body fat and yeah. make him look flat. So, all right. Well, that's all we have time for guys. We appreciate everybody okay. hanging out with us. And uh, for everybody um, who was wondering where Scott was, here he is. So we, uh, Scott's going to be, you're moving yeah. down to uh, very South, Florida um, into a, a former cartel uh, owner's home, I think. Cartel plantation home. That's what it is. There there may be some cartel involvement still at this time, <laughs> possibly. So That's what it looks like. There's like fields yeah. and palm trees, and I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. This is a cartel property, I'm sure of it. Yeah. So. <laughs> it looks – actually, it looks cool, man. It looks like a, a really you cool see place. see the poppy fields in the background? Yeah. That one it looks like a cool place, and uh, I wish you the best of luck with uh, the rest of your move. I know you're in the middle of it now, so I appreciate you taking the time to join us. I'm sure everybody else does, too, especially everybody who's been asking, where's Scott Stevenson? I'm here. I live. All right, guys. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate for, that. For another episode of Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson, I'm Scott McNally. Check out Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. You can go to be yobbcoach.com or check out the hardcover on Amazon. Uh, Go to our great sponsors, truenutrition.com, and you can shop with our code THINK to help support our programming. You can get great performance and health supplements over there. Ask me if you have any questions about any of their products, any of the flavors of their proteins. If you're in Canada, check out supplementsource.ca. Tons of great deals on discounts uh, for... what? What? Ephedrine. Ephedrine. Oh, yeah. Ephedrine. Get your ephedrine. If you're in Canada, it's your constitutional right. But you guys don't have a... Guns <laughs> and ephedrine, baby. <laughs> That's Canada. They don't get the guns, but they get the oh. ephedra. So take advantage of that. Uh, guys, we'll see you soon. Thanks a lot, Scott. Absolutely, man.